Well, a, another reminder for you too, uh, 5K is coming up for those who have signed up for that, so you're welcome because we put that in 90 degree heat for you. So whether you're running that around here or running that on Ocean Avenue, where I will be, it's going to be fantastic. We're going to wait for a little bit, so that's going to be good. Um, but hopefully you guys have signed up for that. I'm excited to get that rolling. This morning we're going to be in a different place than Colossians. So um, we're going to kind of dive into John chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be there. Uh, There won't be a whole lot on the screens for you, unfortunately, this morning on John 4. Uh, And the reason for that isn't Ashley's fault. It's my fault because I completely redid the sermon. Um, This was like Saturday, and I'm like, I think I need to go a different direction. So we'll see what this does today. Um, So I want to go a different direction because I want to recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. And then I want to hit on kind of a case study uh, of some points that were made last week and this week, and to kind of give you a case study on what that would maybe look like in the life of Jesus. And so today will be a lot more story, and so we'll kind of unpack that together. So let me go ahead and pray um, as we jump in, and then we'll continue on. God, thanks so much for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the ultimate example um, of what it means to love others. God, I thank you that um, in the midst of whatever we're facing right now, nothing has taken you by surprise. Um, I thank you that you are still in charge. You are still reigning and ruling today. And I thank you for the opportunity to um, dive into your word, to hear more about how you interact with people, even those who may not be uh, like you and those who may not be like us. And uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk about it this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. I want to first quote something you probably know um, well. It goes like this. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands with which have connected them with one another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, It's the 4th of July weekend, and uh, I don't know about you, we were able to watch Hamilton on uh, Friday night, and uh, just a really amazing um, Broadway play. And I think all of it goes back into this idea this morning that we're going to talk about is what, is we, what do we do in the midst of inequality and how do we deal with it? And so last week we talked about some things. And just to recap um, from last week, we said that Paul warned the church then and is warning us now not to get caught up in culture and in this world. And so last week we talked about kind of the major theme of culture right now is there's just a lot of upheaval and a lot of disunity and things happening. And, and unfortunately, I think that disunity can feed into the church. And we said that those who belong to Christ— live in the here and now, and also in the not yet nation that Jesus called the kingdom. And so last week we talked about the kingdom, and it's very basic, basic terms means that Jesus is reigning and ruling, and we are part of his reigning, and he is alive and ruling over the world today. We said that one of the things we must understand in our current culture is this term called critical theory, and we kind of picked on it a little bit last week. And I used a speaker who's also a theoretical chemist, I couldn't get that word out in first service. Theoretical chemist whose who, side note wrote his PhD on the dissertation of quantum computations and then somehow turned into an apologetic. So is awesome. So, so he has apologist, and so he wrote a uh, piece and a, he, he shared a, a piece that he um, 
shared at a university last year in February, and the title of his, um, I don't think it was a sermon per se, as much as a talk, he said the title of it was Social Justice, Critical Theory, and Christianity, Are They Compatible? And so I want to give you a couple of bullet points from his talk, and they're going to kind of lead our way into what we're going to talk about this morning. He said, society is, he said that the, the message that is being brought to us is that society is divided into oppressed groups and oppressor groups. He said that um, there's a couple positive and negative themes that come out of some claims that are being presented to us today. And so here's some of the claims that are out there right now in culture. You may have heard these. And these claims often can, can intertwine themselves into the church world as well. So claim number one, he said, was this, we should never challenge lived experience. And we're going to talk about that in a little while. The other claim that is out there right now is we need to liberate our theology from privileged groups. What that means is like we need to liberate our theology from just reading the same old people that we've always read before that are just in that power oppressor group, and we need to read from a broad spectrum. He said that we need to dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege, Uh, and there's also a claim out there right now that we should promote diversity within the church. And some of those are really, really helpful and really good. And some of those, we're going to see some of the negative pieces. And you're going to see each of those four claims in the, in the case study that we're going to do this morning. So in all of that, in all of that, we said last week that all believers, for those who follow Christ, must run everything that we see in culture through him, through his word, and, and define everything through the way Christ would. And so... This came out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And then we get into our verse. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That could be a whole sermon. I won't get into that today, but that's a beautiful thing that basically says that Christ is the head of all of it, and we are, are filled with him. And you have been filled with him who is the head of all rule and authority. And then in verse 11, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, have been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's who we are in our position. And then because we are in that position, Colossians 3, which Kurt just read, and 9 and 11, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. He says there's an old part of us, and there's a new part of us. This is all recap. This new part of us is being renewed in the image of the creator. And then he says in verse 11, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. And, and he gives a similar text. This was found in Colossians. He gives another similar text in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, that says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ. He says we all have this new man, and because we are in Christ, we are able to put off these things. And he says all of us then are unified in Christ. And notice in Galatians before we get into our case study, he, he says some interesting things. He notices that this, this um, labeling or, or this um, announcing of different groups is in a different order than Galatians, and he does so in a way to honor different groups. So he honors the Greeks, and he says Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. And then he gets into this weird one. I think you just need to clarify. This is just kind of an extra for you, but um, barbarian and Scythian, um, when you ever read that, did anybody get like, what in the world is a Scythian, right? We don't know what that is. It's not, it sounds like a, um, sounds like a uh, sci-fi kind of deal. It's not. Uh, they were actually a nation that was uh, lived up on the Black Sea, 
uh, and they were actually more savage than the barbarians. So in Rome, the barbarians, if you've seen any old movie when it comes to Rome, these barbarians were ones that basically they were all in animal skins and they would declare war and they would just take things over and there was no like protocol. There was no, we're gonna give you a heads up on the war. There was no etiquette in war. They would just take over. Well, the Scythians, they were like even worse. So let me give you a couple things about the Scythians just to kind of make Paul's point here. Um, that they are all one in Christ if they accept Christ. He says, Scythians were nomadic people around the Black Sea. Uh, they were more savage than the barbarians. They were known for mixing alcohol and blood ceremonies. That's awesome. Uh, there was a whole lot of hemp use back then from this culture. Uh, so that maybe have infiltrated some things and why they did what they did. Uh, the Greeks would often um, accuse them of diluting, not diluting their wine and drinking it straight. And, and that is a minor compared to the next piece. They were a bow and arrow kind of people, and uh, they would dip their arrows in poison and venom and kill people quickly. But even more so, the battlefields, the Scythians would drink the blood of their first enemy that they killed. So they would just kill them on the battlefield, and they would just drink their blood straight up. And people were like, that is messed up. And then it gets worse. Uh, they would actually um, cut off heads and the whole thing, and they would uh, basically take the skulls of their conquered people, and they would strip them of all the skin so it was just the skull left. And then they would decorate the skulls and use them for drinking cups and, in their culture. So you're like, oh, that's a nice mug you got there in your cupboard. Yeah, let me see. Oh, that's a skull. That, that's kind of the deal. That we, I mean, it was just an intense group. At times, they would fillet the entire skin and use it as, as napkins at times of skin. So these were like some nasty people. And so this is like, you're like, oh man, I knew the Bible was good. Yeah, you're welcome. And so all these people were like, put in this list, and he says, even the Scythians, if they accept Christ, were part of this. And he says all this to say that these distinctions can fade if we are in Christ. And so you're saying, so basically we're saying that in Christ, all these people become one. Now, that's kind of the list. I wanted this morning to get a little more practical. I, I promised you last week would be some practical pieces this morning. And so I want to kind of highlight those four claims that we had at the very beginning, and I want to put them into a case study here in John chapter 4. So John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, will be there. Uh, this is a story that's probably very, very familiar to many of us. It's the woman at the well, and um, I think this is a great il- illustration, a great story of what it means to live in this time that we live in that is so racially um, uh, diverse and so racially, honestly, just kind of against one another at times. There's just a lot of talk of that, and so I want to kind to see how Christ entered into kind of a similar situation and learn some things from him. So we start at the very beginning, and that is in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 17, verse 24. And it says this, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cudith, Ava, Hamath, and Sepharim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So basically these conquered nations, they, they would send these Jewish people and they started living with these conquered people, the Babylonians, Avas, and all these kind of things. And they would intermarry among this different nationality and all these different places. And they would intermarry into them until eventually they started to live in this place called Samaria. And the history of Samaria would be that these people would continually be hated more and more and more by the Jewish people simply because of who they were as this race. They, 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 they disliked them because they saw that they were not truly Jewish. 
And they had some horrible terms that they would say against these Samaritans that were part of this. And this would only intensify year after year after year. And this was Samaria's history. And now we enter Jesus into this scenario of this racially <clears throat> hotbed city that was kind of, a, you stay in this little spot. Nobody goes to Samaria. Nobody has anything associated with Samaria. We're not supposed to talk with them. We're just supposed to stay over here and stay pure. Now we go into John chapter four for a case study of how we learn to think through those four claims we talked about earlier. First, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, uh, although Jesus himself not baptized, only he, his disciples, he left Judea, <clears throat> And departed again for Galilee. Verse 4, this is awesome. And he had to pass through Samaria. So in everybody else's world, you, you, you didn't ever have to pass through Samaria. You went around Samaria, you went, you'd never go through it. And yet in Jesus' world, he said, I have to pass. This is something that I have to do. This is not an option for me. I had to pass through Samaria. And so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour, or noon. So it's around noon. He is tired, he's exhausted. He knows he's there on purpose. And as he's sitting there, verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, First thing you need to understand about this woman is, is one, she's coming at noon, which we've probably heard that before. She's there for a reason. But here's the thing that I think is kind of interesting for us today with all this um, disunity and things right now. She would have fit a lot of the major categories of those who were oppressed today even more so back then. So she would have been called what, what in the critical theory term calls intersectionality. In the fact that she was oppressed racially as a group, she would be oppressed as a gender, as a woman, and then add to that, her third oppression would be the vocation or her job would bring even more disdain upon her. So she's kind of got the triple play here, and it's all not good in her favor. And she is in the minority here, and, and in comes Jesus, who is Jewish, and comes in and says, hey, I want to have a conversation. The first thing he does is he asks for a drink of water. This was not oppressor to oppress. This was honor. This was humility. It was, it was not demanding water. As you may read, he says, give me a drink. This wasn't like, give me a drink, woman. This wasn't that, okay? Um, this was him simply asking for a drink, and it, was and it was not him grabbing the bucket. This was one of the times where he says, I want you to see, woman, that I see your worth. Would you please give me something to drink? It's a thing of like with my neighbor where, I, where I, I've sometimes asked him for things that, that I know that I need, but I have a hard time doing it because I don't want to bother him. I don't want to seem like a burden. But isn't it interesting that sometimes when you ask somebody to help you with something, it's really an honor to them because it's, it's asking them their expertise and what they near doing to say, hey, could you help me with this? And Jesus wants to set the tone in this relationship and in this conversation. So he asks her for this drink of water, knowing where the conversation is going to go. I'm sure, but he, as this Jewish rabbi, the member of a majority group, made himself vulnerable to a member of a minority group. Jesus met her where she was. She was not a project, and she would remain a person throughout this conversation. And so here's the first thing he does. He asks for a drink, and then verse 8, the Samaritan woman acknowledges the elephant in the room, right? She automatically just goes there. 
Don't you love those kind of friends? Like, do you have any of those friends? Like, I have those friends who are just like, they, they won't let elephants sit in the room. They just acknowledge them quickly, and you're kind of like, oh, we're going there today. Okay, great. This is verse 8, or verse 9. He says, The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Let's just call this out. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Aren't you better than me? Aren't you never supposed to associate with me? Why are you even here? Is kind of the, the issue she's getting at here. Have you come to kind of just make fun of me? What is the deal? Because we don't ever have conversations. This is not normal. You and I both know you don't belong here. Kind of the scenario. To which many of us, if you've, if you've been in those situations before where you don't belong in the conversation, it's, a, it's an awkward place to be. But Jesus, knowing full well what he's up to, he responds this way. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And so he responds with kind of a weird scenario. What do you mean drawing water and I'm supposed to ask you and how, what, what do you mean here? And then we get into verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. <laughs> kind of an acknowledgement, right? Hey, good big, you know, big man on campus. Where's your bucket? How's this going to work? You're going to like kind of call water up? How's this going to work? Uh, you have no bucket to draw water with. Um, and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And here's where you get that statement. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. We said one of the claims in culture today is that we need to liberate our theology from privileged groups. This was kind of that idea. Her theology was based off of our father Jacob gave us this well, and I'm going to stick all of my claim on the heritage of which we were part of in this land. This is part of that thing. And as good as that can be, this is one of the claims that's seeping into even the church today, is that we need to liberate theology from privileged groups, which basically means this, that we can't just read a bunch of old white guys. We need to, just, just, we need to be diverse in our reading of our theology. And the positive of that is, yes, we should constantly re-examine our theology to recognize where our identity has biased our interpretation. We, we need to understand that. We need to say, yeah, we need to be clear. We need to make sure that we're not just reading somebody because we like the person, right? We need to make sure that it matches Scripture. The negative side of this is the truth of falsehood claims does not depend on the identity of the person making it. You, you can't support that claim because truth must be found not in the identity of the person making it, but on the truth itself. So he, here's what he's saying in here. You can't base all of this off of just your father Jacob. You need to define it off of truth. And the truth is, this, that he's giving her, is that he is this living water, that he is the truth. Whether she accepts it or not, he is the truth. And he doesn't back down. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. In other words, this is going to be a constant theme. You're, going to, you're never going to go thirsty again. And this woman hears that. And she's like, man, that would be great. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty and have to come here to draw water because this is a nuisance. If I can just get water anytime I want, this is going to be awesome. So the first thing he, he does is he meets her as a person. 
He identifies with who she is. He acknowledges the tension in the room and he continues to push her to say, but there's truth here that I'm trying to get at. There is truth that you need to hear and truth that is not relative to things around us. So he says in verse 16, and this is where he gets personal and you've probably heard this before. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And so he just kind of pulls this whole thing. He says, hey, I, I know your lifestyle and I know why you're being out here at noon is, 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 is on purpose because you have to because of your lifestyle and your life experience is this. Let's just kind of call some of that out. So the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Yes, anybody else would have known that. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So she kind of changes the subject back to cultural. Your people, right? You have said and your people say that we're not allowed in Jerusalem because of, our, of who we are as Samaritans. We are not allowed in Jerusalem. And so she's trying to throw that back in his face. This is your guys' problem, not letting us in. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. I'm sorry, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for the salvation is from the Jews. That would have been very probably offensive at this point. But he continues, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For this Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus goes against the second claim, and that is that we should never challenge life experience. This is one of the things in culture that is a really hard thing to come against because everybody you meet in, in, in whatever side of the, the political spectrum they're on, they're going to say, well, my experience is this, and therefore I have a right to speak. And, and, and they do, and I fully agree with that. And so the positive of lived experience is, yes, lived experience can give us valuable insight. But the negative side of this is, but still we must be subjected to the scrutiny of Scripture and evidence and not just based off of life experience. If this woman was left with just life experience, things would have gone very poorly for her. But Jesus, even knowing her life experience and knowing she's basing her truth off of what she knows, comes and offers her truth. And he challenges her lived experience. He says, it's not, even what you see is not all there is. And when she goes into this claim about, you know, we worship on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is a place where our people ought to worship. When she goes into those, it's the, it's the other claim that we hear in culture, and that is we should dismantle all structures with perpetuate, we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege. And so it's this idea of like, you guys are ones that have all the power. You're the ones that we say we always have to go to Jerusalem. You're the ones that always say we have to go here. And he says, yeah, but it's not always going to be that way. You see, this claim in culture today that we should dismantle all structures which perpetuate privilege, the positive side of that is, yes, power can be abused and misused. This is all from um, uh, Neville, Neil's, Neil's talk here, these claims, just so you know where those are coming from. He says power can be abused and misused. That is the positive side of that. Yes, I acknowledge that. But unfortunately, the negative side of this claim is, but power is not inherently evil and power imbalances are not unnecessarily unjust. 
because Jesus never backs down from who he is as the living water and as the power source. He never backtracks and he's like, well, I guess you're right. I guess there's another way to do this. He comes at them and says, no, I understand your lived experience. I understand that, you have a, that, that you've been put down in this culture. And as a woman, you have no right to see these things as, as your lifestyle and you have five husbands, and the one you're with now isn't your husband. As you've lived all these things, I realize you feel at the bottom of the barrel. And it would be very easy for you to be jaded because of your life experience. But let me just share with you that there is real truth, he says, that you need to hear. There is truth that you need to have. He says, all these things that you know can be changed because of who he is. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, but you worship in spirit and truth. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. This is verse 25. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I am, or I who speak to you am he. See, Jesus builds the relationship with respects. With respect, he comes in vulnerability to her at her time, on her time schedule. He challenges her way of thinking. He challenges her culture. He challenges her on her sin. Not just, it's not, the culture's not the problem. The sin is the problem. And she acknowledges her need in searching for the Messiah, for God. And she knew there must be more. And Jesus confirms it. He says, I am the living water. I am the Messiah. I am better than Jacob. Because what he's building the foundation on is what sometimes in critical theory, um, just, to, just to go there again, some of that thing that it's built, that it's not built on, that Jesus builds here on, is that we all have defining markers. We all have a differentiating identity in, in, in being a human, that we were all created. There is a sin and a problem for all of us, and all of us are in need of redemption. Paul says, regardless of classism, race, gender, we all share three things. Everyone is made in the image of God, everyone has fallen, and everyone needs redemption. And this is what critical theory and a lot of culture does not believe, namely that it's possible to share some fundamental identity markers. Again, quoting Neil uh, Chevy in this, in this um, uh, speech that he gives, he says, Critical theory depends crucially on differentiating identity groups into oppressor and oppressed. Conversely, if all human beings shared some fundamental identity marker, that fact would severely undermine the dichotomy between oppressor and oppressed and would call into question the foundations of critical theory. He says that the beauty is that we all have a human part of us that was given to us by God. And he sees that in her. He calls it out in her. And he begins to unpack that for her. And then in verse 39, it gets even better. Because the disciples have now returned. They're confused. They went into town to get bread. They get bread. The woman's leaving them. And, and Jesus is still at the well. There's still no water, by the way. He still didn't get his drink, which he never really gets his drink, I don't think, believe. Um, and so he's at the well, and he gets this bread. And he says, okay, Jesus, we got your bread. Now what? And he's like, I'm good. But we got, but we got, but we got bread. And the disciples, I love the disciples because they're so us. Like, they're just so clueless of what just happened. But as he's there, he, the woman returns to town. She starts sharing all these things. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And the woman told them, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. That's crazy. So this, this racial divide, this crazy gender divide, this whole thing that was there, 
And yet, because of this woman's trust in Jesus as the Messiah and truth to heal her of who she needed of a Savior, she goes back in town, and the town actually goes and asks Jesus to stay. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't know, like, as a pastor, like, it's kind of weird sometimes. Like, you don't normally get invited to, to parties in good places. They, they kind of ignore you. They're kind of like, oh, you wouldn't want to come to this. You know what I mean? You're like, why? That sounds like a lot of fun. Um, but it's all those things of like, in his time and his date, like asking him to stay would have been an uproar in Samaria. I could only imagine seeing him and his group of disciples walking the streets in Samaria and like, come on into our house, come stay. And he does. Beautifully, he not only stays, but he says he stayed there two days. Right? The Son of God stays for two days at the invitation of the town of Samaria. And many more believed in his word, verse 41. And they said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. That's awesome. Because not only has he stayed, but I think this isn't just for the people of Samaria. I truly believe Jesus was using this for his disciples too. Can you imagine how uncomfortable the disciples were? Like, they didn't want to go to Samaria as it was. They, we just, let's just go around. These people have nothing to do with us. They have no value for us, Jesus. Let's just go around them. We are pure. We don't want to talk with these people. We don't like them. We're going to find out later. Peter in the Bible, he has some issues with, with some of this stuff too. There, there's some things. That is, we just go around. And Jesus takes his disciples and he's like, hey guys, guess where we're staying for two days? In that cultural place that you just despise. That's where we're going to stay. For two days, we're going to hang out with these people. And you're going to know them. You're going to love them. I'm going to break this stuff in you that you are so divided. I think this may have been crucial for many of his disciples to see Jesus interact in this way. And I think we need more of that in the church to see them respond in a way that says, we will honor you. You know, it could have been really easy for him to do like I did with a neighbor that's like, no, I don't want to inconvenience you. I don't want to stay too long. We'll just, we'll just stop in for a quick coffee and then we'll be gone, right? No, he says, we're going to stay because they invited us to stay. Two whole days, we're going to hang out and we're going to build this relationship back. And all of this, Jesus was modeling Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 17, which I'm going to go into more detail in another sermon in, this, in the series in Colossians. Um, but for today, I want to just kind of reiterate what Jesus was doing that Paul is saying we as believers should do. Verses 12 to 17 says this, Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He says, put on these things, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. And verse 17, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You see, all of this is that practical thing that we are called to do in loving those who are unlike ourselves. 
And so here's a couple things. I know we saw some things that were going to be practical. So let me just give you a couple things that are just practical in how we live out compassion, hearts, kindness, meekness, patience, and how I think even Jesus maybe probably lived these out in Samaria as he was there. I think the first thing we need to do as a, as a, as a, as a body of believers is acknowledge that racism is a sin and is active today. I think he acknowledged it with her. That he knew the tension was there. He didn't run from the tension. He, he brought it in. He knew that there were biases that his disciples had against them, and he brought it in. And one of the worst things we can do is minimize or dismiss these things that are around us. And he says, I want us to acknowledge it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, it's just practical. Is, and this is just maybe for me, um, but I'll share it with you, and maybe you can resonate with this as well. But fight the fear that you're being manipulated and look for evidence. In other words, in a hard conversation with somebody who's unlike you or sharing facts that are not your facts, have you ever been in those conversations? Like somebody is, they have all the facts against your facts, right? And one of the first things we can do is just become really, really skeptical and we don't want to be manipulated. We don't want to believe something. This is me. I'll just speak honestly. I don't want to be tricked into something. I don't want to be duped and feel like I was manipulated into something. So I'll, I'll just put up a front and I'll, I'll hold on to it. And I'll be like, ah, it's not really what I believe. And so I'm, just, I'm listening, but I'm not really listening. You've been there. Like you're hearing them, but you're not really hearing them. And he says, I don't want us to be fearful of these things and looking for other. I just want to look for truth. And to hear things out. And so sometimes I have to fight the notion of not being tricked into something or being taken advantage of. And so I put up the skeptical wall very quickly. I need to get over it. I just need to listen. Because Jesus here listened and he understood. And he knew what she needed was, Christ, was himself. And, and he allowed her still to speak all these things. It wasn't that he just, he heard them, but he responded to it, right? This whole thing of like Jew and Samaritan, this whole thing of temple and mountain, this whole thing of worship and not worship, this thing of husbands and not trusting living water, he responded to each of them in the conversation, and we can as well. We need to truly listen. And then the other thing that I think is really crucial that he does here, he doesn't put a bunch of labels on her right? He doesn't just completely just come at her really, really hot. So let me give you an example of some things that are happening right now that you've seen on Twitter and on um, social media right now. So one person could post this. I think immigration laws should exist, right? And, and, And I think, you know, somebody who's conservative may have that view and they would say, I think there's some good things about immigration laws. And then the immediate response is American evangelicalism is captive to right-wing fascist, white supremacist, nationalist ideologies that have more in common with the philosophy of Ayn Rant than the teachings of Jesus. And you're like, whoa, <laughs> calm down, bro. I was just saying, I think there's a discussion to have here. But isn't it amazing how quickly when we throw labels in, like it just automatically, it's just really, really tense and really, really tight. Can you imagine if Jesus would have led with some of these things like of Samaria? Hey, I know you're Samaritan. Let me tell you about the Samaritans and how bad they are. Let me give you some labels of who you are. It, it's a terrible way to begin. So let, let, we, we picked on us. So let's pick on the other side. So the other side may say, I think affirmative action laws should exist, which is out there right now. And, 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 the, and the conservative would say, woke evangelicalism is captured to the progressive, socialist, third wave, feminist, globalist ideologies that have more common philosophy of Karl Marx than the teaching of Jesus. And you're like, whoa, woke evangelicalism, progressive, third wave, feminist, globalist, Marx. What are we, what, whoa, that's a lot of labels just tossed out quickly on somebody without really having a conversation. And with Christ, there wasn't a lot of this putting a bunch of labels. There was a conversation. 
And there was a certain part of this. It was not a, a, a thing to be mocked. It wasn't a topic to just kind of create some hot buttons on. This was about a new life for this woman, and he knew what was at stake. And so he lived in a way that he was able to enter into these. We, who are believers in Christ, need to be able to have dialogue with those who are unlike ourselves. We talked about that last week. We said, have a dialogue with somebody who's not like you and hear them for the first time, knowing that we need them in our lives. We need to hear from them. So we can fight the fear of being manipulated. We can avoid labels. We can see them as the person they are. And as we do so, we want to understand that we're ultimately about the gospel. We're ultimately about bringing what they ultimately need, and that is a relationship with Christ in this conversation. Colossians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 say it like this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden in God. This woman in Samaria can be used in a bunch of different ways. And again, I hope today wasn't overreaching on it, but I really do feel like it's a great example of how to have a conversation with somebody who is so unlike you that you can enter into a conversation with respect. You can enter into a conversation and hear them, but you can ultimately have a conversation that points them directly to truth and to facts and not just to lived experience that is around us. This morning, um, closing, I just, I was asking Rich, like, how do we close this thing? And at one point we said, well, let's just close with we are the world because that seems to be the best option. And I said, that's probably not going to work. And so um, I was thinking, like, we'd all do videos with, like, little headsets on and it would be the whole, like, but I was like, no, let's not do that. And so I introduced a new song and it's called Good Grace. And um, I I like this song because in the beginning, the the, the lines are about this idea of though we are strangers, we we are one in Christ. And even as we are one in Christ, then the chorus of this song, if you've not heard it before, we'll give you a chance to to learn it this morning. The chorus of this song is an anthem. Um, And there's like two or three different versions of this song. And I gave Rich the tamed down acoustic version right now. But this song has a couple versions. And one of them, it gets really, really loud because it's this anthem that sings during the chorus that Jesus is our salvation, light of heaven. And this whole thing is an anthem that we can sing together. And so I'm just going to encourage you as you learn it, to hear it, but also as you learn it, as we get to the anthem, I pray that you would just be celebrating that together. We are one body together, um, unified in how we sing this out. So let me pray for us as we jump into this closing song, and then we'll finish up today. God, we thank you so much for examples in Scripture of how you love people. God, we thank you for your word that you teach us how not only to love people, but also how we are to act ourselves. So God, I pray this morning as we close with this song, God, that it wouldn't just be another song that we sing, but God, that we would truly um, be singing this with those brothers and sisters in Christ all around that, uh, that believe the same thing, that you are the Christ, you are the only one that we need. And so Father, even as we are um, separated by space and time right now, uh, I pray that we would be able to sing this together in harmony with brothers and sisters, like I said, around the world, um, declaring who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.